Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, good morning, everybody. Awesome to be with you. Uh, Last weekend, we started uh, a series that's going to last a total of four weeks called Discovering God's Story, which um, is going to be a little bit typical or different than a typical series that we've done. Uh, If you were here last week, it probably felt a little bit like trying to drink from a fire hose. We were going through a whole lot of of material. It's going to be even more today. Uh, We're going to go through even more. But really, the the whole idea of this, this series, which is going to probably feel a little bit more like a class than maybe a typical sermon series. I feel like I'm getting to flex my teacher muscles instead of my preacher muscles when I used to be a teacher. Uh, But it's gonna be, the whole idea is that we wanna take a look at the overarching meta-narrative story of the Bible from really beginning to end. From looking at kind of a sort of a, a Cliff Notes version, you might say, of Genesis to Revelation to understand really the big picture, the overall big picture. And last weekend I used the analogy of how the Bible story can be, it's so long, it spans so much time, there's so many different people involved, uh, so many different events and, and things happening. It can feel like, as a Christian, to look at the Bible and feel like you've been handed all these puzzle pieces, but you haven't been given the box to know what the puzzle's supposed to look like. Like, how do all these pieces actually fit together? What's the, how, what's the main overarching thing of how they're supposed to look like? I think that's important for us as Christians to understand that, um, so that just while we're reading the Bible and we're going through it, whether it's on our own time or it's you know, in a small group or you're showing up here on a weekend service and you're hearing a specific you know, section talked about, it's important that we understand the context of how that all fits together in the big picture. But I also think it's important because God's story, the story of the Bible is our story, that we are a part of God's story. And so we have to understand what God's doing so that we understand our part that he's inviting us to play in it. If we don't understand what he's doing, then how are we going to know that? So last week we talked about how the Bible can kind of be thought of with the idea of it being like a play, like a play with four acts, four acts, four, four times where the scenery changes, you know, and there's kind of distinct stopping points and starting points. Uh, And last week I talked about act, act one, really the idea of creation, uh, or what was kind of nicknamed the Eden Project. And we kind of summarized Genesis 1 through 11. And if you missed last weekend, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to it online or watch it, watch it online. Um, and I know some of you were taking notes like crazy, saying I couldn't keep up. Well, we actually have the notes from last weekend on the info counter, so you're welcome to grab those if you're a big note taker. We also have uh, this week's notes out there as well. Um, but um, we talked about Act 1 last week. This, today I'm going to talk about Act 2 really the story of Israel, God's people, um, who are meant to be a light to the rest of the world. And that's going to span really, I'm going to summarize Genesis 12, basically through the rest of the Old Testament, which is all the way through Malachi, a really big chunk. Last weekend, I, I, I hassled Michael and teased him about it. And he said, fine, then you do it, uh, which is not true. Um, we just had a schedule change, but I just like to mess with him up here. It, you know, that's good. Um, next weekend, we're going to look at Act 3, the Messiah, really how Jesus comes to the, into the story and looking at how he's the true Israel and summarize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the week four, we'll kind of summarize the church, 
who's going to take on basically being the nickname, the new Israel, looking at the acts of the apostles, basically to the last book, Revelation. Um, so uh, just a quick recap, if you weren't here last week, or if you've kind of forgotten what we talked about, uh, when we open the very first page of the Bible, at the very beginning of everything, God is creating. He's creating. He's creating everything out of nothing, including Adam and Eve. He's creating humanity. And he looks at Adam and Eve and he's like, okay, that is very good. What I've just made there, those people are very good. And, and it's not because, he doesn't look at them and say they're very good because they've done a great job. They literally had done nothing yet. He just, he calls them very good because they are made in his image. They're his image bearers. They are a reflection of him. And God invites Adam and Eve to basically be his like co-regents on this earth, his, his king priests or queen priests, if you want to think of it like that. And he gives them three assignments to do, three assignments. We talked about these last week, to multiply, to fill, and to rule. To multiply, to fill, and to rule. To multiply, he basically said, I want you to make more image bearers. In the case of Adam and Eve, that meant have children, bear children. Uh, that could be the case still today, but also it could mean making disciples, that we can multiply by making disciples. And we'll talk more about that in the, the coming weeks a little bit. Then he says, I want you to fill. He tells Adam and Eve, I want you to fill. I want you to spread out over the earth. And I want you to bring my kingdom rule, basically what I want done to get done. I want you, with my, my authority and power, I want you to bring that to the rest of the world. And it's not an oppressive rule or a tyrannical rule or a selfish rule or take whatever you want kind of rule. It's meant to be a loving rule, a caring way of ruling and looking after. And he puts Adam and Eve in this garden, in this place called Eden, surrounded by the rest of the wilderness. And they're meant to do these three assignments, multiply, fill, and rule. But they're meant to do them with two intentions or two ways or two manners. And, and, and this is, God's expectation is that they would be first right with him in right relationship with him as they're doing these things and that they would remain right with each other horizontally, that they would stay in right relationship with each other. But pretty much right off the bat, Genesis 3, that gets tarnished. Like sin enters the, the world right off at the beginning. Satan tempts Adam and Eve and, um, and they eat the forbidden fruit from, from the tree, right? And they, the, the trust between God and his people are broken. It's broken and it's broken between each other because they blame each other for it. So these, these two relationships are kind of stained, but God covers that. He covers that through a sacrifice. He covers that through a sacrifice and he continues despite their failures to love them and pursue them and want to use them. And we talked about how he does that with Adam and Eve. And then he did that with Noah. He even did that with the people of Babel that he kind of said, okay, well, it's time to start you guys spreading out. So I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna confuse your languages and you're all gonna spread out and, and start to fill the earth. And so God does that. And that really leads up to what we're gonna talk about today. This kind of, he's, God's ready to do kind of this divide and conquer strategy where he's going to form one new people group, a new nation, to be a light to all the other nations, to show them how they are to come under God, how they're supposed to live in right relationship with him and uh, with each other and to fulfill these, these three assignments and bring his, his way of doing things, God's way of doing things. And he's gonna do that through one, one person, one man named Abram. Uh, and that's really where we're gonna start act two. So I'm just gonna pray real quick and then we'll dive in looking into the, the people of Israel. So Lord, I just thank you for your presence here. 
I thank you that you're with us. And as we look at the story, really the, the big picture story of the people of Israel, uh, I pray that there would, there would just be something that each of us would learn from, about it today. And I pray that we, could, we would see, you know, how we're in that story too. We could see ourselves in the story and we could see you're faithful to, not, to us, just like you were faithful to Israel, that we would see your faithfulness to us. Yeah, pray that in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So act two, Israel, God's people for the world, starts with a man named Abram. Abram, a pagan man who God renames Abraham, meaning the father of nations. And he says, I want you to follow me. He says, I wanna be your God. I want you to follow me. I'm gonna take care of you and I'm gonna give you more descendants than you can imagine. You look up at the stars, I'm gonna give you more descendants than that, he says. And Abraham believes him. He puts his faith, he starts to worship God and he's, and he's obedient to him. And so God makes this promise with Abraham, Genesis 12, two through three, it says this. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So here we see God's plan is he's gonna take care of Abraham and his family, but he's gonna use Abraham to continue in those three assignments to bless all these other people groups, all these other nations. There's just one problem. Abraham doesn't have any, fa- any descendants. He doesn't have any children. How can God give him and make his descendants as many as the stars of the sky if he doesn't have any kids, right? And Abraham and his wife at this point are, are older in age. They're up in years. He's 80 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 70 years old, well beyond childbearing years. And God says, no, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I'm gonna give you a child. And they have to wait 20 more years till that happens. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90 when God gives them this miracle son, this gift, Isaac. He is the promised one, kind of the the one and only begotten son that this nation is going to, to grow through. And then this really interesting thing happens where God basically asks for Isaac back. He says, I just gave you this kid. Now I'm, got, now I'm asking for him back. He wants him to sacrifice Isaac upon this mountain, Mount Moriah. He says, I want you to take Isaac up there. And I want you to sacrifice him to me. And that seems, well, one, that seems awful, right? That seems terribly cruel. But, but in that day and culture, it was probably very likely that there were religions that practiced child sacrifice. And so Abraham may have like seen other people and other religions do this. And so he's faithful. He doesn't understand how this is gonna work, but he's obedient. He takes Isaac up onto the, to the mountain. And just before he's gonna sacrifice his own son, God stops him and says, okay, you, you've passed the test. I wanted to see if you would just be obedient. Actually, here's what I want you to sacrifice. There's a sheep, a ram right over there. And his, his horns are stuck, stuck in this thicket of thorns. Literally, the sheep has a crown of thorns on his head. And he says, I want you to sacrifice that sheep instead. I'm, and God's basically saying, I'm gonna provide the sacrifice. If you be faithful to me, God says, I will, I will provide the sacrifice for you. And so he does that. And so Isaac grows up has a son named Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel. God renames him Israel, hence the name of the nation. And then, they re- then the, that first assignment of multiplying really starts to happen for this nation because Israel has 12 sons, 12 boys. And those 12 sons, 
their descendants become the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So during their lifetime, a great famine hits and strikes and they all, they all have to go and they end up living in Egypt to survive the famine. And all during that time, God continues to bless all these descendants of Israel. They keep multiplying, having many, many, you know, more children, family. They become a very big, large group. And over time, living in Egypt, the, the future pharaohs take advantage of their great numbers. They take advantage of them by enslaving them and, and using them as their workforce. For 400 years, the Israelite people are found, are enslaved in Egypt. All that time, they're crying out to God, like, hey, where are you? Like, what's going on? And God hears their cries. That, that's pretty much how the, the book of Genesis ends and the book of Exodus begins, where God has compassion on his people. He's heard the cries of them in slavery, and he chooses one of Abraham's descendants, a man named Moses, uh, and he appears to Moses in this really miraculous way in the form of a burning bush, where he says, Moses, I'm gonna use you to lead my people out of slavery into the promised land, a land that they describe as flowing with milk and honey. That's how it's described. Basically, another Eden. I'm gonna take you to another Eden. And if you know the story, Moses goes before Pharaoh, basically kind of as his mouthpiece, and he demands that Pharaoh let the people go. Let my people go, right? And Pharaoh refuses. He says, no, I don't wanna give up my, my free workforce. He doesn't do it. And so... Really at that point, we see Moses kind of acting, kind of flashback to Adam and Eve as like a king priest. We're gonna see God works through Moses as kind of like a king declaring God's authority and power through these 10 signs and wonders, basically that are gonna happen. And, and, and he's acting as an intermediary, which is like what a priest does between God and creation and the people in the world. And so he's gonna speak like that. And these 10 signs and wonders that occur are these crazy miracles, uh, but they're really kind of a battle between God's kingdom and the kingdom of the kingdom of light versus really the enemy's kingdom. What Satan, what it came in when sin entered, the kingdom of darkness and these false idols and these false gods. It's really a battle, kind of God flexing His muscle to show that He is stronger than all the other Egyptian gods in this case. So there's just a couple examples. Uh, there was a plague, if you know the story, one of the plagues was all these locusts came, the swarm of locusts came. Well, the Egyptians, one of their gods that they worshiped was a god named Serapia. And that god was supposed to protect the Egyptians from these locust swarms. So God is saying, yep, Serapia's got nothing on me. Like I, I, I can bring the locusts and, and I can control that. And then um, the, there's a god, uh, the Egyptian god of Hathor was the, cow god, basically the god of livestock. And God sends a plague on the Egyptian livestock and they start dying. And God is showing and proving, hey, Hathor's got nothing on me. I, I am stronger than Hathor. The well-known Egyptian god Ra who controlled the sun, well, God showed that he had power over Ra by literally darkening the sky in the middle of the day. And then finally, the 10th one, the 10th sign and wonder really was to show that Pharaoh, who was believed to have been a God, the Egyptians worshiped Pharaoh as a God and his son would be a future, was thought to have been a God as well because he would be the future Pharaoh. Um, God showed that um, with the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn son of every family, that really Pharaoh didn't have power over Israel's God. And that 10th 
that 10th sign and wonder was really important because it became known as the Passover, as the Passover, something they would celebrate, the Israelite people would celebrate every year, where, where basically says, God says, I will protect your firstborn sons if you will make a sacrifice of, a, of another sheep, of a lamb, going back to Abraham and Isaac. And you take the blood of that lamb and you, you cover the doorframe of your, of your home. That will be a protection over you, a covering over you. And that night the angel of the Lord came and he passed over, hence the name Passover. He passed over the homes that had that, the blood of the lamb on the doors. But the houses that didn't have it, well, the firstborn sons in those homes died that night, including Pharaoh's son, including the successor of Egypt. And so it's at that point that finally, Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go, go. Um, and they, they go through and God parts the Red Sea and they go from slavery on one side to freedom on the other side. Now, who were these redeemed people of God? Who were these people that God saved? Who were they? Well, one, they were, they were the people who obeyed God through this uh, God's sacrifice of faith, of, of spreading the blood of the lamb over the entrance of their home. And they obeyed by leaving Egypt quickly and immediately, leaving slavery behind. And this is really important. It wasn't just the Israelites who did this. There were actually some Egyptians who did this as well. Um, Exodus 9.20, if you read it, some of the Egyptians saw all that the Israelites God could do through all these 10 signs and wonders and all these plagues. And they said, well, that God is clearly stronger than the rest of these gods. We're gonna start to follow him. We're gonna start to worship him. See, these 10 plagues and 10 signs and wonders, they weren't meant to, to, to primarily be punishment. They were primarily meant to be evangelistic, to say, hey, I'm the one true God. Come worship me, come follow me, come be a part of my people. And some of them did. Some of these Egyptians got adopted in to the Israelite family, basically. So I think that's amazing. So they go on to the other side of the Red Sea. And before they can go into the promised land, God, like a good father, he wants to teach his firstborn son, Israel, if we want to think of it like that, how to live in this new freedom. This is how I want you to live right with me. Those two intentions again, and right with each other. And so he, he tells Moses to go on to Mount Sinai. And what does he give Moses on Mount Sinai? He gives him the law. He gives him the 10 commandments. And it's not a coincidence that when you look at the 10 commandments, that the first four are all about being right with God. They're all about being right with God. Like you shall have no other gods but me. Uh, don't use my name in vain. I want you to take the seventh day off so we can spend time together. You and me, God and me, you're my people. It's all, about, it's all about being right with God. And five through 10 are all about how to learn how to be right with each other. Like, I don't want you to steal from each other. I don't want you to kill each other. I don't want you to commit adultery against each other, right? They're all about how to be right with each other. He's, God is trying to teach his children, this is how you follow these um, two intentions. And, and he's promises to be with his people, just like he was, just like he promised to take care of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He adds this, this third dimension to his promise, basically. He says, I'm gonna live with you again. I'm gonna dwell with you again. Back like, referring back to in the garden with Adam and Eve. Because I'm, I'm no longer gonna feel distant or far off. You're gonna be able to see my presence. Exodus 29 verses 45 through 46 says this, and this is God speaking. And then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. 
They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He's saying, I'm gonna live with you again. I'm gonna be with you. You're gonna be able to see something of my presence. And it's from that point that he, there, God is with the people in this miraculous way as a pillar of cloud in the day or a pillar of fire at night. Cause you can't see clouds very good in the, in the nighttime, right? So it's fire in the day, right? And he's going to be with them and he's going to guide them uh, to the promised land. But if you know the story, the people are, well, they're like young children. They're impatient, they're impulsive, they're disobedient. And pretty much right off the bat, they start, they build a golden calf and start worshiping this golden calf. They've forgotten all these things that God has just done for them. And they start worshiping this golden calf. And so God basically puts them in a timeout for lack of a, he says, okay, for the next 40 years, you're not gonna go into the promised land. You're gonna be in a timeout. And I'm gonna take those four years to teach you and to train you how to live in the right with me and right with each other. And that's basically what happens. But he never leaves them. He basically sits with them in timeout the whole time. He's always guiding them, that pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, he's always with them. He's feeding them. He's sending food from heaven, manna from heaven to feed them. He takes care of them, he never abandons them. Much of the next few books of the Bible, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy kind of expand on those experiences of the Israelites who are wandering around in the wilderness for these 40 years. And God is continuing to teach them the law of, this is how I want you to live right with me as my firstborn child, as my, as my image bearers, basically. And that takes us really to the book of Joshua, uh, where when that 40 year period is over and that training has happened, God says, okay, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead you into the promised land. And he uses Joshua to, to kind of be the leader. Um, but at that time, the, the place where they were gonna live, it wasn't empty. There were people living there. And so Joshua uh, has to go in and there, the people could have, they had, the people living in that area had heard of all these things the Israelite God had done. They could have come under and started to worship him and they would have been included, but most of them resisted. Most of them fought back. And so there's some pretty miraculous battles that happen throughout the time of Joshua and the period of where he's leading the people. And I just think one of the things that's really important to understand is that the name Joshua is the name Yeshua in Hebrew and it's the name Jesus in Greek. That, that in Joshua, the first Joshua, we see a foreshadowing of another Joshua, Jesus, who will come. And his name means God or Yahweh saves. So he is, their, he is their savior and he's going to rescue them and he's going to defeat these other people groups. And basically at the end of that time period, the 12 tribes settle and live in the area that we pretty close to where we think of the modern day Israel today. If you wanna show that map, these are the 12, I know you can't really read it very well, but like the 12 different tribes kind of living in this area, area right off the Mediterranean Sea where we would kind of expect Israel geopolitically to exist um, today. Now, right after they kind of start to get settled, the, that's really the time where God uses judges. The book of Judges is kind of the next part there. The, at that time, the Israelites had no earthly king. God was their king. They were supposed to see him as their God. But God uses judges or local rulers who were meant to help govern the issues and challenges of the different tribes, but also to help deliver the people when they were in crisis. 
And so he raises up people like Deborah, Samson, Gideon. You may have heard of some of them before, some of the judges that God uses. But during the time of the judges, there's this kind of pattern that continues to happen. This cyclical pattern we see over and over and over again as, as God's children are continually disobedient to him and then he has to correct them. So if you wanna throw that, yep, got that up there. Okay, so, so after a little while, during the time of Judges, the people would turn away from God. They would stop following him properly. They would turn away from him. And so God would allow a consequence to happen to try to correct them. He would allow something to come, whether it was a people group attacking or something happening to try to get their attention. And then after that happens, the whole point of that though was ultimately for the people to repent, to realize they need God. They need to be dependent on him. And so the people would repent. And in response to their repentance, God would then use one of these judges to deliver them, to basically in a miraculous way, save them and rescue them from these other people groups. And then for there would be a period of rest of peace where the people would worship God properly, but they had short memories. They kept forgetting how to do it well. And they would just keep going over and over and over again. That just kept happening. All the while though, um, God does not give up on his people. He doesn't give up on his people at all. And at the end of Judges, Judges 21, 25, the very last verse of the book of Judges says this. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And that was the problem. Everyone just did whatever they felt like it. They weren't being obedient to the way God wanted them to live. They weren't fulfilling the assignments that he had called them to do in the way he had called them to do that. And they looked at all these other nations around them who had these earthly kings, and they were, it's almost like they were looking over the fence and saying, yeah, I want that. Uh, we wanna have a king. And, and so um, God is not surprised by that, actually. Um, like back in Deuteronomy 17, like uh, with Moses that, you know, like three minutes ago, um, <laughs> uh, God told Moses, someday the people will ask for a king. And these are the requirements uh, uh, the Israelite king should have. And he lists all these requirements. And so after, after this part, we really enter into the season where God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have a king. I'll let you have a king. So we enter the season where there are a series of kings in Israel's um, history. And really that's kind of going through first and second Samuel, first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. And the very first king uh, is the man named Saul. Saul is the very first king. And he was kind of like initially the people's king, the people's choice. He looked the part, strong and mighty on the outside, but on the inside, his character was weak. And very quickly, he, he does not follow all the things that God says a, to be a, a king needs to be in Deuteronomy 17, all those principles. And so God withdraws his blessing, his anointing off of Saul. And he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick my own king now. Now it's my turn, my turn. And I'm gonna choose David. So David becomes the second king of Israel. And this was God's king. This was God's choice uh, because David had great faith, amazing faith in God. You know, the story of David and Goliath, we see David's faith that God will bring him victory. And so we see that play out. And during David's reign, really, David won many great battles for the Israelites and really secured the border of Israel from the, the people living around them, making it kind of a, a place of peace by the end. But David was far from perfect, far from perfect. He was an adulterer, he was a murderer. Like he did these terrible things, but yet what, what was different about David 
was David, when he realized his sin, he fully repented and he accepted the consequences for his sin. He, and that's what God wants from us, when we, when we, that we would repent, that we would turn away from our, our brokenness and our, our mistakes and our sins and come back to him. And so David's son, Solomon, then becomes the third king of Israel. And if there's a nickname for Solomon, it would probably be that he is the wise king, the wise king. Um, and that's because the beginning of Solomon's really reign, God appears to him in a dream. And in 1 Kings 3 through 5, he, God says this, ask for anything you want me to give you. Ask for anything. And he could ask for long life. He could ask for wealth. He could ask for a victory over his enemies. Solomon doesn't ask for any of that. He says, I want you to give me a discerning heart so I will know right from wrong and how to lead the people. Basically, what he's asking for is he's asking God to show him how to fulfill that third assignment. God, show me how to rule in a way, your people in a way that brings honor to you, is right with you and, and good for the people. And God is like, Finally, some, that's what I've been looking for, right? And, and he says, okay, I'm not only am I gonna give you that, I'm gonna give you all the other stuff too. I'm gonna give you a long life, wealth, and peace over your enemies. And so really what we see happen during Solomon's reign is the golden age of Israel. It is the high point of their nation um, as a people group. There's peace, there's prosperity, like there's more than enough to go around for everybody. Um, there's just, it's, everything's going well. They, they build the, the, the temple, one of the ancient wonders of the world, this temple to God. Solomon builds that for God and God lived in the temple. If you wanna show that picture up there, the diagram of what it may have looked like, that we think it might've looked like. In the center, the tall part is the middle court, the third inner court. It's called the Holy of Holies. And there, the presence of God shined in there. There was the Shekinah glory, it was called, like literally the glowing presence of God existed in there. And, and so we have this, this, one of these amazing wonders of the world. And, um, and, and during this whole period, like the people are doing what, you know, at first initially, what they're supposed to be doing. They're multiplying, they're filling, they're ruling. And what we see happen is the effects of that is the kingdom of God is spreading. It begins to spread beyond the geopolitical borders of Israel. In fact, people start coming to Israel to talk to King Solomon and to worship God. There's a story in 1 Kings 10, 2 Chronicles 9 of the Queen of Sheba. This queen from outside comes in and she's heard of, of Solomon's wisdom and heard of Israelites' God. And she comes to spend time with him. And she's so impressed. She just praises Solomon and then she praises God. She begins to worship the Israelite God. And we see that what's happening, that how Israel is supposed to be this light to all the other nations. They're supposed to look at Israel and say, wow, whatever you guys have going on, we want that. It actually begins to start happening. And if you wanna show that next map, that the little pink, pinkish purplish area is kind of around there where Israel was, the tribes of Israel living, were living. But go to the next one now. This is where their influence spread to during Solomon's reign. It's, it was spreading vast beyond the, the actual borders of Israel. The, again, the kingdom of God, multiply fill rule was happening. It was happening. It was actually, they were being a light to the world. But that light, unfortunately, was more like a match that is almost as quick as you light, it goes out. It didn't last very long. 
It didn't last very long because even though Solomon in all of his wisdom, he still messed up a lot. He took way too many wives from surrounding nations who brought their idol worshiping gods. He had sons, too many sons with all of these wives that there was no clear line of successor of who was gonna be the next king. And so these sons begin to fight and a civil war breaks out, a civil war. And they literally get divided North and South like our nation did in this civil war. And the country of Israel is divided into two parts. And they divide into the North and the South. And in the North, 10 of the 12 tribes stay with the North and they retain the name Israel because it's kind of a bigger group. And they develop this capital of Samaria, which will come into play later in the story, the Samaritans, right? But that's part of, part of the Northern part. And then the Southern kingdom is the two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But Benjamin was a tiny little tribe. There weren't as many people. And so uh, Judah kind of, that, that name stuck. And that's where the capital of, of Jerusalem was. And so during this time, they're split, they're divided. And there were 20 total kings in the North and 20 total kings in the South. And of the 20 kings in the North, zero of them walked with God. Zero of them were obedient to God and faithful to God. Of the uh, 20 kings in the South, only eight of them walked in obedience to God, which is better but that's still only 40%. It's still enough, right? It's not very good. So during this time, God really starts to use prophets. He starts to use prophets to speak to the kings, to speak to the people of God. And when we think of prophets, we often think of people who can like predict the future. That's not primarily what they, they weren't fortune tellers. Mostly what they did is they, they told the people to remember the past. They said, remember the past. Remember what our God has done for us. Remember who he is. Remember the promises he's made for us. Remember what he said would happen if we don't stay in alignment with him. There are gonna be consequences. And so they, they're, they're, they're kind of like God's law enforcers, basically saying like, hey, hey, if you, don't, if you keep doing the things you're doing, there's gonna be a consequence. You're gonna hurt yourself. You're gonna hurt somebody else. Right? And so there's a lot of different prophets throughout the Old Testament. I'm just going to kind of list them. I don't expect you to memorize them. Uh, but Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah, they all kind of focused on warning that northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and then Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Obadiah, and Joel focused on warning the southern and Judah kingdom. And then during and then post-exile, which I'll we'll get to here in a second, there were a few other prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi prophesied to the people during that time. And so there's all these different people that God raises up to, to call the people of Israel to repentance, to say, don't live this way, be faithful to God. But after 20 unfaithful kings, basically 20 faith, unfaithful leaders in the North, God says, okay, I've been patient long enough. There has to be a consequence for your actions. Like, otherwise you're never gonna learn. And so he allows the Assyrian army to come in to the North and basically all the Jewish people scatter. They go live in other nations. They're, 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 they're off, they're, they're running for their lives. They're dispersed. And because eight of the 20 kings in the Southern kingdom of Judah were faithful, God was a bit more patient a bit more patient, but between um, 605 and 586 BC, the Babylonians come 
and attacked Jerusalem three different times. And eventually they knocked down the wall surrounding Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and they basically destroyed everything. And whoever, the people, the few who survived, the people who survived, the Jews who survived are taken off into exile and have to go live in Babylon. And for many years, the people of God were either scattered or exiled during that time. And it's actually then that the people actually finally begin to truly repent, to truly repent. And during the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, slowly in that repentance, the Jews are allowed to return to the promised land, to come back home. And they begin rebuilding the city wall in Jerusalem. And they begin rebuilding a second temple. It wasn't nearly as big or grand as the first temple that Solomon built. But, but there was a temple there for them to worship in. But God's glory shining presence never ever returned to that temple. And so for 400 years, the, the Babylonians, then the Persian Medes, then the, um, then the Greeks, then the Romans, all these different groups kind of occupying and coming into Israel. Like the, the, God never lives in the temple again in that time. And they're waiting for God to return. They're waiting for a, a, a Moses to deliver them. They're waiting for a, a Joshua to save them. They're waiting for a King David to come and fight for them. They're waiting for, to restore basically their nation to the golden age of Israel. That's what they're waiting for and longing for. They're waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting for Jesus. And that's really how the end of act two ends right there. So how's that for like 900 chapters in like 30 minutes, right? So um, if the worship team wants to, to, to start to make their way back up here, you know, next week we're gonna talk about um, Jesus and the Messiah and how he comes to fulfill all those things. And we'll see all these themes. We'll see how Jesus is the, the one who makes everything right again with God and with humanity. We'll see how he fulfills those three assignments perfectly. And we'll see him like come and really show us how he is um, the true chosen son of God. Where Israel was the chosen nation, the chosen son of God, they, Israel was a prototype of, of Christ to come. And, you know, when I think about this, this overarching story of Israel, and we talked a lot, a lot of people, a lot of time periods, you know, a lot of events that I talked about here just a little bit ago. What's amazing to me is despite their continual rebellion, despite their continual forgetfulness, despite their continual sin and turning away from God time and time and time again, God is always faithful. He's always faithful. He's always calling them to repentance. He's always calling them and welcoming them back in. He's, he is, he never, he's never not with them. He wants to always pursue them and use them. And that's so encouraging to me personally, I know, just because in my own brokenness, in my own sin, I know that he will always be pursuing me in that way. He will always be forgiving to me in that way. And the same goes for you as well. And so if, if that's not a reason to worship him, I don't know what is, right? So why don't we stand up and let's worship him. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.